Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading starting at verse 23 of chapter 4, continuing ahead in the book of Acts. And I'll read through to verse 11 of chapter 5. You'll see in your notes there the verses of focus, verses 32 to 37. And the title of today's sermon is, The Thriving Church Goes On. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately 
she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You may have already noticed that today's text is very similar to a text that we studied in chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 47, where we were first introduced to this thriving church. There were two sermons about the thriving church at that time. I think it's worth rereading that text, which shows the initial life of the church. You recall that occurred right after the conversions that were associated with Peter's sermon. That was his first sermon which he gave there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the great noise, the speaking in tongues, the miraculous languages that were given, and all the people rushing to see what was going on. And Peter's like, no, we're not drunk. And he gives that great, wonderful sermon. And God adds to his church. And then there's that description of Luke to say, okay, here's what the church looked like at that time. What did that body of believers look like then? Do they look similar now to the text we'll look at today? Things have changed. The church has grown significantly, and they've been through very significant persecution. Things have changed. Has the church changed? Listen to the text. Then those who glad this is Acts chapter two. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about three thousand souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, those who are being saved. So, will the growing, persecuted church maintain its vitality? Or will it be changed in unhealthy ways that lead away from Christ, away from His presence, away from His power? What is the verdict? Today's sermon, you may see that uh, the answer is there in the title. The thriving church goes on. And that's A great way to understand what's happening here is that God's Spirit is greater than every challenge we face. God's, if you don't remember anything else, you write it down and go to sleep now, God's Spirit is greater than every challenge we'll face. doesn't matter what we face. God's Spirit, if we are filled with His Spirit, He is greater than every challenge we face individually, as families, but particularly from this text, as a church. So first we'll look at this idea of the multitude in verse 32. And we'll look again at one heart and one soul. You know, we're going to be looking at this over and over in the book of Acts. Luke just keeps coming back to the unity of the people of God and the beauty of the unity of the people of God. And then as the churches get planted, things go wrong. And Paul starts writing epistles. Peter starts writing epistles. John starts writing epistles. Wait a minute. Things are not like they were in Jerusalem. And that disunity is one of the things that comes up. They had all things in common. We'll look at that in verse 32. Again, as we look through the New Testament, we'll see churches get sick when they get selfish. 
The disunity leads to selfishness. They don't look after each other. 1 Corinthians 11 is all about that. Great power was upon the apostles in the preaching of the word at this point in time. And there was great grace that was described as being upon them. And that's, that's an outward kind of thing, but it's coming from inside. We'll talk about that grace as well. This is divine power. This is divine favor upon these people through the indwelling, the filling, the overabundant overflow of the filling of the Holy Spirit of God in all of these people together. No one lacked because of their unity, because of their community, because of their compassion and their tenderness and their generosity, because of their understanding of the final family. The final family, see, that's what we're all a part of. We're all a part of the final family, the family that will not end, the bloodline that will never go away. Your bloodline will probably maybe end. Mine might end, right? The, lo- the line of the blood of Jesus, will it ever end? It will not. And that's the family we're all a part of that will last forever. And that's why when we come together here, we need to remember that we're a family of families, yes. But the one family that matters the most is the one that will last forever. And that's the one that we celebrate when we come together here on the Lord's Day. That's why they were able to take care of one another. Because they knew that their father would look after them. And their father owned the whole world. I'm already preaching. I'm just still in the outline. And I've gone ahead and started preaching. It's so exciting. And then there's the example of Barnabas. Luke, in his kindness to us, gives a specific example of an individual. We can trace his life out. That'll be one of the lives that we trace out through the book of Acts. A life to emulate. A life to praise. May we all, may may it be true that any of us could be called a son or a daughter of encouragement. And we'll want to try to learn that from Barnabas over time. So let's move into the text. Now, the multitude of those who believe. I want to look at this word multitude. It's great number of men or things, but I think it's fascinating. This Greek word, the root word for this particular Greek word, is the same word used for the filling of the Holy Spirit that we just looked at in verse 31 and in other verses. So this idea, this root word, is to cause something to be completely full, to fill completely up, to fill up so much that it's overflowing, we see this in Matthew 27, 48, when they took a sponge and he filled it with sour wine. And we see in Luke 5, that's a very special verse there to my family, because you remember what happened when the boat was sinking. Why was it sinking? Because it was filled with fish. And Jesus told them where to fish. They fished all night long. Remember, it's like, Lord, we know how to fish. You do the preaching, right? No, go fish over there. They fill the boats up and the boats start sinking because of they listened to Christ. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled, that's the word, both the boats so that they began to sink. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what it's like. We're filled up so much that it's coming out of us. Acts 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I hope that you're getting this fullness, this overflowing. It's so much it's coming out. 4.8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. And he goes on and gives that great, wonderful sermon there to the, to the people. And then, and then to, before the San, uh, Sanhedrin. And then the verse we just looked at, when they had prayed, just verse 31, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So this is the root word of the word for multitude. Hmm. What is the significance of the close Greek linguistic connection between this root word, which means to fill up completely, 
This is individuals who are together being filled up completely with the Holy Spirit. And this other Greek word that means multitude. A great number. Really kind of an, you don't have time to count them. That's how many there are. This is the multitude of those who believed. Right, what is belief? It's the gift of the Spirit. This is the multitude of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled up. That's how they believe. So this word here with the Holy Spirit, filling, this is where our belief comes from. So those who believe are those who are filled. And those filled up with the Spirit who believe, then what happens? They are drawn together and they create a multitude. From being filled up to being a multitude filled up together. The fillings bring us together and they create a multitude who believe in Jesus together. This is the pattern of a thriving, healthy church. Compare it to Acts 2, 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So in this first description of the thriving church, Luke gives us a numerical estimate of how many souls were added, and thus how many souls were a part of the church at that time. So the point is, a count effort at that point in time was not too hard, not too time-consuming, so if you will, the church rolls at that time were up to date. They, they, they could have written them all down, probably they did. But today's text, a count really won't do. It's a multitude, a large number, a very large number of believers at this point. It's a fast-growing church. That's a problem, but it's a blessing. It's a fast-growing church, so much so that they don't even really have a number. <clears throat> Think about that. Tell me about your church growth. Well, you know what? I can't count them all. We're still working on that. That's the situation that they're in as the church is growing like that. But in today's text, no count is going to work. Keep that in mind. So what's the result of going through persecution? Do they shrink? Do they run away? What happens? The church grows. Matthew Henry says, the increase of the church is the glory of it and the multitude of those that believe more than their quality. Now the church shines and her light is come when souls thus fly like a cloud into her bosom and like doves to their windows. They were all of one heart and of one soul, though there were many, very many of different ages, tempers, and conditions in the world who perhaps before they believed were perfect strangers to each other. Yet when they met in Christ, they were as intimately acquainted as if they had known one another many years. And this is what happens when we're all filled with the mind of Christ. When we're all filled with the heart of Christ together, then we enjoy being the hands of Christ, the voice of Christ, the feet of Christ together. So, one heart and one soul. This multitude of those who believed they were together and they were, we're told, of one heart and one soul. So again, Luke here emphasizes the unity of those who believed. So the ideas present here is a multitude, a lot of people, faith, and unity. These are the ideas. Now, it's hard to get two or three people to agree on something. But this is a group of people that they can't hardly count who all are in so much agreement that he can say that they're all of one heart and one mind. Not just some of the believers are unified. The multitude is unified in what? In the faith. The most important thing about our existence. Yet there are a lot of believers, so many that counting at that point in time was not practical, but the emphasis upon the multitude is not primarily 
on their impressive numbers. That is an emphasis. But the big emphasis here is upon the power of faith. Faith from God to unify us believers. It is fear that separates us. It is faith that drives out fear and unites us to one another. Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. We, we heard that verse referenced this morning during Christian instruction hour. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's grace. That's great grace upon a people when God humbles them like this and brings them low and it is the prerequisite to church unity. Verse 3, Ephesians 4, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here's the faith. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Our faith in the one true God and the one gospel of the one true God and the one calling that He's placed upon His church brings us into unity as one people. We can learn to live and function as His bride. A single word describing all of us united together. His body. A single word uniting all of us together. When one part suffers, every part suffers. This is the koinonia, the fellowship that is ours in Christ. It leads to the compassion and the tenderness and the desire to expend our resources for one another. Heart and mind, we're told. Cardia, the Greek word, denotes the center of all spiritual life. Of course, it's the word that we have for cardiology, and so it has to do with the physical heart, but it denotes the center of all spiritual life, the center and seat of our soul and our mind as it is the fountain and the seed of our thoughts. And so there's overlap, you'll see, between these two words, heart and mind. Because heart, we see the faculty and seed of the intelligence of the will and character, and yet mind is similar. It's the soul. It's regarded as a moral being designed for everlasting life. And the definition goes on to also describe it as the seat of these things. So cardia and pasukse are related Greek words, but they're different enough to be listed separately. It's not a sermon meant to get in and try to sort through the detailed meaning of all of these words. But their mind, their heart, their will, their emotions, they were all united together with one heart and one mind. How can this be? How can us sinful, fearful, selfish human beings, how can we ever get along like this? How can a multitude, so many, not just a few, so many, be brought to such deep unity. They've been taught by Christ. They've been taught by Christ and they've been filled with His Holy Spirit. Thus, through that, they come to understand reality by His grace together, a shared reality, and they go on submitting everything to Him and to His kingdom together. They've all been granted the heart and the mind of Christ. And this is the great mystery of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus, who died, dwells in us, and sanctification is laying aside our own mind and heart and taking His mind and heart, 
through the renewing of our minds by His Word. His Word tells us His mind. His Word tells us His heart. And He will teach us His mind and His heart as we are in His Word. That's what He did with them during the 40 days after He was resurrected. He taught them His Word. He opened their minds to His Word and they all believed it together. That's why they were so united. And what happens here is what Jesus does is He humbles us. What He does when He teaches us His Word and by His Spirit is He humbles us and this kills the miserable pride of individualism and brings us into the joyful humility of kingdom unity. Do you think we live in a world that knows how to be unified? Or do we live in an individualistic age that is built upon fragmentation and isolation and individualism and autonomy and rebellion and I'll stick around with you as long as you stroke my ego enough? Do you think that's the kind of world that we live in? I do. I think that's the world we live in. And I'll tell you, if you surround yourself with people like that or if you are a person like that, you will never know this joy, this gladness, this purpose, this satisfaction that we can have serving God together. It's such a beautiful miracle to behold, brothers and sisters, because this, I hope, it, I hope that you can begin to get in touch with what a great, great miracle this is. You should be more shocked to see this than to see a dead man raised up off the ground. It's a greater miracle for us filthy, selfish, self-centered sinners, self-centered sinners, to submit ourselves to one another than it is for a physical body to be raised from the dead. And I could argue that all day long. Let the cancers be healed. Amen. Praise be to God. Let the blind be given sight. Let the deaf be made to hear. Let the lame get up and walk. Give me unity instead if I've got a choice. That is the greatest miracle that can happen, is that people like us can be brought together. It's such a beautiful miracle to behold. And for those with eyes to see, the beauty of even a glimpse of this God-wrought Christian community echoes on and on in our souls. And we get just a little taste of it. We want more. Remember the scent of sacred oils and the dew on mountainsides. I think that's what the psalmist is getting at. David, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So sin destroys this. Sin destroys unity. And what God has done is He's brought them into the forgiveness of sin, the repentance and the remission of sin that they're preaching. They're not just preaching it, they're experiencing it. They're living it in one another's presence. And somehow God is making them able. This is a multitude of people. You think there were a multitude of sins? <laughs> this is a multitude of people. You think there was a multitude of offenses? A multitude of difficulties, a multitude of opportunities to repent and confess and forgive. That's what they lived. They had to live that. And it's beautiful when God does this. Because they're not focused on whether you've slighted me or not. 
And, you know, like, how dare you? They're focused on getting that out of the way so they can continue together in love to do God's will together because they want Christ's name to be glorified. All right, next. They had all things in common. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. This word common is uh, koinos, shared by all or several. I hope you recognize that word koinos. It's related to koinonia. That's the word for fellowship we saw in Acts 2.42, and then it was this very word was used in 2.44. I'll read it again. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's the word koinonia. In the breaking of bread and in prayers, in verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. So, fellowship is koinonia. So one of the essential elements, what we learn from this is one of the essential elements to Christian fellowship is the awareness that we are family. I love this so much I got ahead of myself during the outline. In fact, our family ties in Christ define us far more than anything else in life. I'm I'm proud to be a Clark, if you will. I'm thankful for my dad's name and for how he loved me, and I want to be able to continue the good things that he taught me, and I, I hope my kids will have some good things that they think about being a Clark, but you know what? That's nothing compared to being in Christ. That's nothing compared to being a Christian and, and furthering his family name. That's what we should be about. So if we are in sin, think of it this way. If we are in sin, tell me if you think this is true. If we are in sin to not look out for members of our own earthly temporary households, if we're in sin to not look after our own temporary family households, how much more so are we in sin to not look out for the needs of the members of our eternal household? 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So one of the promises you will have as a member here at Foothills Christian Assembly is that the money that comes into this church will be first used to take care of this local assembly. If any of the families in this church ever need anything, we're going to take care of you. That's what this church is going to do. And it's going to be an extension of this, an example of this, an application of this. So one major fruit of Christian unity is Christian compassion, tenderness, and generosity. You see, what came first was the unity, but then it has an appearance. The reality of personal property, which is real, it's a biblical principle given to us. You can't steal if there's no such thing as personal property. The reality of personal property, though, in the church does not lead to possessiveness but rather to freely sharing with the body of Christ. The decision that I have, the decision that you have with your personal property is a great opportunity to sacrifice. Do you see? It's because you possess it that you have the ability to sacrifice. The reality of of their eternal ties in Christ informs their use of their property. They know how to cash in and invest for eternity. They are aware that in Christ, all is theirs as co-heirs with him to the entire world. What does Jesus own? Could we survey? Could we run a survey of what Jesus owns? Could we call up a surveyor? 
heaven and earth. There's no bounds. You can't put a, a line around it. You can't draw a plat of what Jesus owns. It's all His, and so it's all ours. And they know this. And they know that it will come to them as needed to do His will. So they're not afraid. They're aware their Father in heaven will care for them. They know He loves them. They fearlessly share their possessions because they already share the mind and the heart of Christ. They're loving Christ when they love one another. Think about that. He gives us the opportunity to love Him when we love one another. He's so glorious, and I never got to talk with Him. He's so beautiful, and I never got to recline at table with Him. But I can talk with you. I, you, can, you can talk with one another. You can recline at table with each other. And in that, cold water or hamburger, whatever it is, you can serve Christ in your hospitality, in your sharing, in your sacrifice. You're giving to Christ. They had to have had in mind the promises, the amazing, astounding promises that Christ had made to them. I think one of the best spots to find this promise is in Matthew 6. You may hear me talking more, just kind of a bit of a tangent real quick, you may hear me talking more about memorization of Scripture as, as from the pulpit. You know, if you're looking for Scriptures to memorize, here's one. Okay, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Jesus told His disciples, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? He's pointing to your eternal soul when he says that. Your eternal life. Verse 26, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Brothers and sisters, do you think that God values you more than crows or sparrows or hummingbirds or hawks or owls? Do you believe He values you more than a bird? You might not. You should believe that He does value you more than any other created species as one of His beloved children. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to His stature? So first He talks about, do you really believe that I love you? Next, He's talking about your fear. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to His stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. It's futile to worry. It doesn't help you feed yourself or clothe yourself. Does he love you more than the birds? Does he love you more than the lilies of the field? Can he feed you? Can he clothe you? Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. See, God knows what we need to do what? To do what? To be comfortable? To be fashionable? To be famous? To stand out? To have a great reputation? No. Here's what he knows our needs. And he'll, prov and he'll provide them for his people without fail. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to 
you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So there's all these new believers. It's a multitude of people. It's probably a crowd that includes some who had traveled from a long way away for the Pentecost feast. And their travel funds are running out, but they've come to Christ. And they're a part of this multitude. And other things. Perhaps people were put out of the uh, charity from the Jewish church if they came to Christ. There's a lot of things that they're speculating about as to why the need would have been so great. Because if they all live in Jerusalem, why would the need have been so great? So there's apparently a lot of people here who are about to run out of food, clothing, and shelter. Do they worry? Maybe they did. They probably had to deal with that, right? But ultimately, what do they do? They sold their stuff. The people who had lands sold them and brought them and gave them to the, to the disciples. Now, there's another thing behind this promise. They heard the promise in Matthew 6, back in the day when Jesus was still walking the earth. They heard, they heard it from his mouth. But something happened after that. Surely, they remember the Father's great sacrifice in giving them his only son to die upon the cross. Now they not only know what the promise is, but they know why. They know it's undergirded with this great, demonstrated love. Knowing the Father's love for the Son, they trust His heart and actions towards them. And Paul uses this promise to try to encourage the saints in Rome when he writes to them. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This promise is given in the context of persecution. He's talking about tribulations and hardships that they're going through there, the church at Rome. And he says... He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Yeah, I'll sell my stuff. It all belongs to him anyways. He'll give it back if I'm meant to have it again. Yeah, you know, I love my land. I spend a lot of time on it, but I'll sell it. You know, if God wants me to, if he wants me to have it, he'll give it back to me. If not, he'll give me something else. He's going to give me whatever I need to do his will. That's who our Father is. He loves the glory of His Son so much that He's going to make sure that the people whom His Son died for have what they need to advance the glory of His name in the earth. That's what He gives stuff for. If you want it for yourself, if you want it for your own reputation, your own kingdom, your own advancement, well, that's vanity. That's waste. Again, let's compare this to Acts 2.44. Listen to the description of the church back then before persecution kicked in. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. So it's continuing. Things had been less complicated back then. Their numbers were smaller. And persecution had yet to arrive. The good old days. Was it maybe a week before? Maybe two weeks? We don't know for sure. But it wasn't very long. Yet neither the persecution of the church nor the rapid growth of the church brought fragmenting fear into their community. Their faith was overcoming the world. And that's the thing this text warns us against is fragmenting fear. It is fear that keeps us. It is fear that blocks us from receiving God's promises. We need faith to overcome fear. The multitude of those who believed, not the multitude of those who were afraid. Watch out for fear. Pray, brothers and sisters, that God would root out any ungodly fear in your heart 
and in your mind and replace it with the fear of God in the heart and mind of Jesus Christ. Next, with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the other mark that was in place here of this thriving church was great power. This is uh, megas uh, dunamis, great power. A lot of dynamite might be a way to say it. Great, very much strength, ability, and might. Now it definitely represents, excuse me, references the power of their preaching directly. You can see that. But it may also be referencing preaching accompanied by miracles, which is what they had prayed for, what they had asked for. And this word here for power, for might, is often the word used for wonders, for signs, for miracles. So their prayer for boldness, we know, had already been answered. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That, we are not told whether it's just the believers who are speaking with boldness to one another or whether if they're out evangelizing. Yet, here we see they are evangelizing. They are out amongst those who have yet to believe. And we see their courageous and their powerful preaching goes on. It was not transient. It was not an emotional experience because of the shaking of the building that took place. Oh, well, I, I, I preached like crazy after the building shook. Well, what happened when the building stopped shaking? Was your soul still being shaken by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God as he grounded you and established you in his glory? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit unto Christian unity and generosity, unto Christian compassion and care, was also unto continued boldness in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. All of these things are coming to them from Christ, poured out by the filling of the Spirit. Note the point of focus of their preaching. When you preach, what do you talk about? Witnessing to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not possible to share the gospel without sharing the resurrection. Of, there is no gospel if there is no resurrection. The resurrection, you can talk about crucifixion. You can talk about Jesus dying, but you have not preached the gospel until you've talked about Jesus coming back from the dead. You can talk about Jesus being ascended and on his throne, but if you tell about how he got there through the resurrection, you've not preached the gospel. There's no way to preach the gospel apart from the resurrection, but if you preach the resurrection, you must also preach the crucifixion. You must preach the ascension. You must preach all these other doctrines. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. And that's why the focus was on witnessing to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, look, Jesus that you killed, he came back from the dead. We saw him. He was alive. We touched him. We ate with him. We talked with him. That will generate some conversation. And that's what they were doing. They were generating gospel conversations through the claim that a man who was on this earth who was dead was then alive. And then they'll have a lot of questions. They served as eyewitnesses to this. They were living out what Jesus had commanded them, and I'm probably going to keep reading this text over and over to us throughout the study of the book of Acts because this guides all that we see the church doing through the book of Acts. This is Jesus talking to them after his resurrection, shortly before his ascension. He says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So this is before he was crucified. He's referencing back. 
that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. This is when they came to know the truth. This is when they came into reality. Before that, they had not been living in reality. Now he brings them into reality. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So that's what, that's what the gospel is. And then here's their, here's their commandment. Here's their commission. Here's what they're doing right now. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So this is what they're doing. They're going out and telling everyone that Jesus came back from the dead. And in that, they get to preach repentance and the remission of sins, and they get to work their way back through the Scriptures and show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Matthew Henry says, By the great power wherewith the apostles attested the resurrection may be meant... One, the great vigor, spirit, and courage with which they published and avowed this doctrine. They did it not softly and diffidently, but with liveliness and resolution, as those that were themselves abundantly satisfied of the truth of it and earnestly desired that others would be so too. I like how he puts that. But also, he says, or the miracles which they wrought to confirm their doctrine. With works of great power, they gave witness to the resurrection of Christ, God himself in them bearing witness too. So he also makes the point that perhaps there were great miracles occurring and that this great power was referencing that. Brothers and sisters, there wasn't just great power, there was great grace. And great grace was upon them all. What good is power without grace? It actually is a very terrifying thing. It's a very terrifying thing, power without grace. That which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. It also has to do with the way we speak to one another, the grace of our speech. So this great grace of God was at work, the text says, upon them all. So there was grace that God had just put all on all of them, like a, a glorious aroma from heaven that the aroma of heaven is just infused upon them all. There was an outward evidence of the inward work of grace. And that's always true. Inwardly, they'd been filled with the Holy Spirit and granted the heart and mind of Christ. As we talked about, they'd been granted that unity with one another. What great grace. They knew the favor that was theirs in Christ. And they granted that to one another. Outwardly, They were courageously preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There's grace. They were sharing with one another. There's grace. They were taking care of one another as family. And there was a sweetness and a pleasantness about their fellowship. How good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in Christian unity. This is not a man-made unity. This is not a conforming, squeezing type of unity. Conformity. That's what men do. Men put pressure on one another using fear to create conformity, and it's very unpleasant. It is not the aroma of grace. But when God does it, heaven's aroma abounds. And everyone sees it. 
Their interactions with one another are infused with this grace, with this love, with this tenderness, with this compassion, with this humility. And the people of the whole town of Jerusalem there would have noticed it. They would have been known as a sweet people, a powerful people. And we're told before the fear of God was upon them and upon everyone. That's what it says in Acts 2. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the same kind of aroma of grace was upon the church then, and it continued even when they were growing. It continued even after the persecution. How much more did they need it when they were faced with that kind of fear? and the potential for the disorder of a growing church. So the same divine power and love in Acts Acts chapter 2 poured out at Pentecost by the Holy Spirit's presence and filling continues to drench the church of Jerusalem. So the threats of the Sanhedrin can't run Jesus off. Okay, The threats of your enemies cannot run off your Savior who died for you. The threats of your enemies cannot pull the Holy Spirit out of you. He who is in you, he will will overcome. Trust in him, and he will give you more of himself. See, great grace is necessary for the church to grow without giving way. Here's another key point. Without giving way to pride and self-focus, to rivalry and competitiveness. As churches grow, they are tested. Their humility particularly is tested. Will we glorify Christ and give praise to His name and His name alone if our numbers swell? May God bless us. May God bless us to be humble. Henry says, There were evident fruits of this grace in all they said and did, such as put an honor upon them and recommended them to the favor of God as being in His sight of great price. Some in- think it also includes the favor they they had with the people. Everyone saw beauty and an excellency in them and respected them. So even those who disagreed with them, who didn't agree with their message, could not deny the sweetness of their conversation. Now, we have a specific outcome referenced here. There was not anyone among them who lacked. So they had all things in common, but what actually happened was Not anyone among them lacked. They took care of everyone, this multitude. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. This is the outcome of the attitude that we saw earlier in verse 32. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. They were ready at a moment's notice to do whatever it took to take care of their forever family. They were ready at a moment's notice to do whatever was necessary with their possessions to take care of their forever family. In today's world, their land might be something like your your 401k. Their land might be something like your retirement fund. Their land might be something like the gold you have in your safe. They were ready at a moment's notice to do whatever it took to take care of their forever family. 
It feels good to be a part of a people like that, doesn't it? It feels good, and it should. It's meant to be a great comfort to us. You know, we talk about how God loves to care for us, and He did give manna from heaven. He may do that again, but generally the way He cares for us is through the hands. Put, put your hands up and just look at them. These are the hands right here that God uses in general to take care of His people. So, we'll look back again to Acts 2. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So they were already living in this. They'd already been blessed with this, in which we even called one of the major marks of the thriving church, is this kind of community thinking, this kind of forever family thinking. And it flies in the face of everything we've been taught in this world. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, I'm like, ah, eh, you're just trying to take advantage of me. You just want to get my stuff. I mean, that's how we've been taught our whole lives, is just to be suspicious of one another, to not trust each other, to not care for one another. Well, God can deliver us from that, and he can bring us into the actual practical daily, weekly, month by month, year by year experience of being the forever family that, he, that he's made us. So note a couple of things. Those with greater wealth voluntarily gave large donations to the church. This was likely well beyond the commanded tithe that they were supposed to give to the church. They sold land because they wanted to in order to help provide for their siblings in Christ. When one part suffers, everyone suffers. How precious might land be to you or to me or even to them? Are the needs of our brothers and sisters less important to us than those precious possessions that we have? What are you unwilling to part with in order to care for Christ's body, for Christ's bride? I mean, don't you, I mean, I don't know about you, are, are you thinking about that wonderful story of that woman breaking open that expensive, expensive oil and anointing Jesus with it? This is what they're doing. They're anointing one another like she anointed Jesus. This was not a commandment of the church. Mark that. There's no such thing as Christian socialism. This was not a commandment of the church. It was a fruit of their unity in Christ, filled with Christ's heart and Christ's mind for Christ's bride. They overflow with the hands of Christ towards those who were in need in their midst. It's voluntary. Don't ever let anyone trick you into believing in Christian socialism or guilt you into thinking that you're required to do with your possessions what you are not required to do with them. But what were they required to do? You know what they were required to do? They were required to give in to the Holy Spirit. That's what we're required to do. Give in to the Holy Spirit when He prompts us to love and serve each other. Next, note their desire for the church to administer their compassion. This, this appears to be a progression, an advancement, an improvement. We don't know that for sure. They could have been having the apostles administer it before, but it's not directly mentioned. They chose not only to share one to another privately without any help from the church, but also they chose to bring the church into the process of providing for their brothers and sisters. Both of these ways of administering help are in view, privately and also through the church. Note, the apostles must have known the needs of the people because they were able to distribute to each as anyone had need. And the people giving those large sums must have observed something about what the apostles were doing to give them the confidence to know, hey, they're going to take care of this money properly. 
they know there's a lot of needs here. And they know probably better than I do who should get stuff first and who has the greatest need and how much their need is. Somehow, even in the midst of this multitude of new believers, the apostles were able to shepherd the flock according to personal needs. You see that? Given as each had need. So there's a multitude, but there's individuals. And somehow, the apostles, by God's grace, were given the ability to administer these funds. Now, also, I think we need to emphasize this, it is likely that those in need were not too proud to make their needs known to the apostles. I don't know this for sure, but I think it's unlikely that all the initial leaders, those 120, would have been sufficient to shepherd proactively and get all the information that was needed through their own questioning and their own visiting. Probably they were encouraging folks, please come and let us know what your needs are. See, it's a two-way street. Note their trust towards the apostles. Think about what has happened here. Christian unity, oneness in Christ has created this deep kind of trust and collaboration between, between church members and church leaders. Look, when you give your 10% because God has commanded you to, you're not trusting your church leaders, per se. I mean, you are because you could choose a different church, right? So if you don't trust your church leaders to administer the tithe properly, you need to find a different church, okay? But once you're in a church and you're giving your tithe, it's kind of this habit that you're doing. But then if you choose to go way above and beyond that and give a lot more in order to help someone, what kind of trust does that show towards the church leaders? So the Holy Spirit of God has created this deep trust and collaboration between church members and church leaders. There's only one body. We all have a different part. There's not two. There's not like the church leaders, one body, the church members, another body. No, we're all a part of one body. We all have our part to play. And God does this in us and gives us trust and, and helps us help each other. So you can help your church leaders so you can trust them more. And they can, your church leaders can help you. So they can trust you more. And trust grows over time as we submit to one another as discipleship, as shepherding takes place. When they laid it at their feet, it was probably a symbol, meaning they submitted the exact usage of the funds to the apostles' judgment. In other words, no strings attached. Here it is. It's for the church. That's the only string that's attached. But you know what? Maybe there'll be those outside the church that we could serve after all the needs inside the church are taking place. Matthew Henry says, they did not take away property, but they were indifferent to it. They did not call what they had their own in a way of pride, boasting of it or trusting in it. They did not call it their own because they had in affection forsaken all for Christ and were continually expecting to be stripped of all because of their adherence to Him. They did not say that aught was their own, for we can call nothing our own but sin. What we have in the world is more God's than our own. We have it from Him. We must use it for Him. We are accountable to Him for it. This is called stewardship. We know who the real owner is. No man said that what he had was his own. So what are they talking about there? They're granting that God owns everything. They're granting that they are just stewards. This is not my stuff. Nothing you have as a Christian ultimately is yours. It belongs to your Father in heaven and you've been granted its use for the purpose of his kingdom. Going on with Henry. These people were ready to distribute, willing to communicate, and desire not to eat their morsel alone. 
but what he had to spare from himself and family, his poor neighbors were welcome to. Those that had estates were not solicitous to lay up, but very willing to lay out and would straighten themselves to help their brethren. No marvel that they were of one heart and soul when they sat so loose to the wealth of this world. Men's holding their own and grasping it at more than their own are the rise of wars and fightings. So, this text teaches us a lot about the right way to view our physical possessions. And on the one hand, you know, we'll have this idea of socialism and, you know, you don't really own anything. The government owns it, right? The government actually owns it and they get to take it from you and give it to the poor, right? But the reality is that in Christianity, nothing that we have is our own because it belongs to God. And He, by His Spirit, works in us to voluntarily give to take care of those with whom we are forever united in Christ, our brothers and sisters. So Barnabas is given to us as this example. Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have a specific example to follow over time is this brother Barnabas, whom I can't wait to meet and talk to him. Here Luke takes all that he has said and brings before our eyes a single example of a good man who is living this out. Barnabas, son of encouragement, that's what that means, is a very important man in the progress of God's church during these years. Brothers and sisters, without encouragement, we don't, we don't make progress. Without encouragement, we do not make progress. We'll learn a lot about him. He is worthy of our praise and emulation because of his praise and emulation of Christ. You can ask a lot of questions about where the church would be if there wasn't Barnabas, if God did not put him there. It's a worthwhile question as you study of life. Where, his life, where would Paul have been without Barnabas? Barnabas, unlike the two scoundrels in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, gave all of his proceeds to the church without pretense because his desire was not to puff himself up and make himself look like a wonderful, wonderful Christian. But his desire was simply to serve his brothers and sisters in Christ. So, praise be to God for his word and for this second picture of a thriving church and how the church goes on, even in the face of persecution, even amidst the challenges of this multitude that had come to faith. God continues to keep them together and bless them as they're doing his will. So a couple of questions. Do you think, right now at the top of your head, you could make a list of the inner and outer features of a healthy, thriving church? That'll be your homework. Go to, go to Acts chapter 2. Go to this text. There's others to come. But at least these two texts are right there in front of you. I made a list. It's probably not comprehensive. You would probably find some things that I missed. It, it always flows from inside to outside, right? How do you know a tree? By its fruit, right? If you go in my backyard, certain times a year, you can tell whether it's a pear tree or an apple tree. You can tell by the fruit. So what's going on inside the people who are a part of what God is doing to make them a thriving church? Here's what I wrote down. The fear of God is upon them all. They have the heart and the mind of Christ within them. That gets to his word. They're in his word together. 
and they're being taught and instructed from His Word together. And they are filled with His Holy Spirit, so He is the one who is teaching them. They are together His pupils. They have faith. There is great faith. They believe what they are hearing from the Word, and their faith is growing, and their fear is being pressed out. They have gladness. They have this grace upon them that people want to be a part of. And it's not forced. It's not counterfeit. It's not because you know you're supposed to be glad. It's the gladness that you have when you're hungry and somebody puts your favorite food right in front of you. It's not, you don't have to work that up, do you? You're just glad to be there. This is the gladness of a people of God that are thriving, that are healthy. They have grace of soul. This grace is the idea of favor. They know that God's favor is upon them, and they're just so glad and thankful for it. They have great trust towards Christ. They really believe that their Father in heaven loves them and that their household is the household of all the people that he saved and the boundaries of his household, you can't make a plat. The, the, the mansion, the homes, the clothing, the food that he has for his people cannot be estimated. They really believe this. They don't look at their own checkbooks. They don't look at their own plats. They don't look at their own closets. They don't look at anything of their own. They don't look at their own crops or their own barns. It's not where they look to feel safe. They trust in Christ's provision and Christ's protection. They don't walk into their safe and count their ammo or the number of their guns. They trust in Christ's power. Go ahead and buy your guns. It's good. But what are you trusting in? They have boldness. They have courage. They can't be frightened away from doing His will because of all these things. On the inside, there's just this confidence, this cheerful confidence that they cannot. They're invincible. They know they're invincible until the day God chooses to take them off the earth. I mean, think about that. You can't die until Jesus takes you off this earth. You can't be hungry until Jesus decides for you to be hungry. You can't be homeless, naked, sick, threatened until Jesus decides for you to be that way. And that means it's good for you. This is the kind of trust they had. Note also the trust that's between church leaders and church members. It's a really important thing that you see in a thriving church. And then there's just this huge gratitude that's a part of who they are. They're just grateful people. That, and you see that in the praise that comes out and moving on to the outward. This is a beautiful thing to watch. The doctrine, the apostles' doctrine, and it's preached with boldness, and they're constantly in the Word, reading the Word, hearing the Word, studying the Word, memorizing the Word, meditating on the Word, singing the Word, praying the Word, writing out the Word. They are people of the Word. And then they're together. They don't zoom it in. They don't zoom it in. They come in person where they love each other so much that if they get sick from being in each other's presence, so be it. So be it. They're together and they enjoy the fellowship. They're together. They have everything in common. They're the eternal family. And they have the Lord's Supper together regularly. They're together. They don't home church. They know that's nonsense. 
They come together with the people of God, as the people of God, with the meal of God, before the throne of God, to experience the grace of God together. This is what they do over and over again. And the prayers, the prayers are taking place, flowing out of them, all kinds of prayers. And, and this is what we do when we worship God. We've got prayers from the beginning to the end. This whole thing here is called prayer in the scriptures. The prayers, what we're doing. This is the prayers. And you're going to have a chance to pray when we get to our time of corporate prayer. And hopefully you'll remember what we talked about last week. And we'll continue to grow up in our prayers together. Praise. Prayers of praise. Exaltation. Confession of sin. Crying out for the destruction of our enemies. Lifting up one another's needs. Making supplication for one another. All kinds of prayers are always flowing out from the people of God. There's miracles. There's miracles in a thriving church. And I think that's something we should really pray for and ask God to do that in our midst. That we would see miracles. And yes, the miracle of unity, I emphasize, but He also does other things as well in a thriving church. Let's pray for that and expect that. There's caring for one another's needs and generosity. We've talked about that a lot today already. They were also house to house. This gets to hospitality. A thriving church will be a hospitable church. They're praising God. Even their enemies are looking on them and thinking, you know, they're pretty good folks. They're crazy with all that Jesus stuff, but kind of glad they're my, my neighbors. That's what it's like for a thriving church. And that church, brothers and sisters, it will grow. It will grow in grace, and it will, it will grow in numbers. We saw early on that it, they were added to, and then later there's a multitude. So as God is doing His work, in a thriving, healthy church, that church will grow. Not just one local assembly, but when God is working in an area, in a people, there will be that church growth. And this unity that's being discussed isn't just the unity inside these four walls right here at Foothills Christian Assembly. It might be easy to think that what this, what this is about. It's not limited here. Certainly we have to think about it here. It's about God's church in our region being unified with all the Christians in our area that we can be by God's grace somehow. We're a long way from that, aren't we? <clears throat> and there'll be a, 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 a relational aroma of sweetness, of humility, of kindness, of tenderness. Um, that idea, look how much Christ has suffered. You know, anything that I could go through is nothing compared to what he's been through. So how do you stack up to all this? Where have you been challenged today by what you've heard? Where do you see yourself in terms of contribution to the health of God's church? Do you see, this, do you th see these things happening in, in your own life and the indwelling of the Spirit to the overflowing of contributing to the health of God's church? And I don't mean just here at Foothills. Obviously, this is where you have your covenant membership. It starts here, but it doesn't end here. I'm talking about to Christians everywhere. How are you contributing to the well-being of God's church? When you look inside yourself, do you see this grace? Do you see this faith? Do you see this peace, this shalom? Do you see this trust towards God? Do you see this humility, this gratitude, this tenderness and compassion towards people? Or do you see more fear, lack of love towards God? Lack of love towards others, unbelief, pride, unforgiveness, distance from others, isolation, rare engagement with the people of God. Outwardly, 
the good? Are you in the Word with His people and fellowship and communion and a part of the prayers and worship? Are you regularly in Christian worship? Are you praying and expecting for God to do miracles, for this power to be seen? Are you generous? Is that how you think of your goods? Do you praise Him? Is His praise on your lips with His people? Is there relational peace in your life? Do you love hospitality? These are questions. Or is there a paucity of God's Word and a, a, a rarity of you worshiping with God's people? Are you lonely? Are you feel isolated? Are you prayerless? And <clears throat> you miss, miss worship with His people or worship, worship in your family or worship on your own with God? Do you find yourself afraid and impotent in most of life's situations? Are you stingy and ungrateful with your stuff and find yourself critical towards those around you? When you look inside, which do you see? Is your life made up of broken relationships? Or is your life made up of relationships that by and large are intact? Which is it? Why is that the case? Do you love hospitality or do you avoid it? So these are questions, I think, that help us see where we are in our love towards God and our love towards others and help us see where we can grow up. You know, when you go to the Word, it's kind of like going to the doctor. Right? You get your checkup. And hopefully today, there might be some spots where there were some abnormal lab values that you've seen in your life. Maybe some places where you need to feed on some better nourishment and be strengthened and made more like these Christians were who were a part of this healthy, thriving church. I see that a lot in my life, places where I need to grow up in Christ. And may He do that in us uh, for His glory, for His glory, for our joy. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for the way that You have saved us and how You've poured out Your Spirit in us and how You have given us uh, such wondrous tastes of Your presence in our lives. And Lord, we also acknowledge to You all the ways within when we look inside that we see that we don't believe You. We don't trust in You, that we're afraid, we're prideful, we're unforgiving. Lord, we acknowledge that we are a blend of belief and unbelief. And we praise You, O oh God, that when we are faithless, You are faithful. And that You are the one who finishes the work that You've begun in us. And we thank You for how You hold up the mirror of Your glory to us when we look at Your Word. And we see this thriving church, this healthy church, and all the ways that You worked in that church by Your Holy Spirit and through that church to Jerusalem and to the world. And oh God, we acknowledge today that we are not like that church in so many ways, but we long to be Lord. And we look to You as our healer. And we trust that from Your throne, Your heart is for us. And that You indeed desire to help us to grow to be more like this thriving, healthy church. Bless us, we pray, Father, for Your glory, for the glory of the name of Christ to this end. Amen.